0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Elijah, the Troubler of Israel. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 10th, 2008. The story of Elijah confronts readers with the real politic of Israel's ancient kings. In a Bible that we consider a sacred narrative of salvation history, First and Second Kings make for strangely secular reading. Elijah's a welcome exception. He was a lonely prophet, alternately manic and reclusive, who faced down the political powers of his day. The political panorama of first and second kings encompasses the reigns of 40 kings and one queen. The chronicle begins with the death of King David and the ascension of his son Solomon. It ends 400 years later with Israel's exile to Babylon in 586 BC. Only two kings receive unqualified approval by the narrator Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18.3, and Josiah in 2 Kings 22. With dreary regularity, we read about coups, assassinations, civil wars, marital alliances to consolidate power, and idolatry. Over 30 times, the writer renders the ominous judgment that a king, quote, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, end quote. Instead of glorifying or celebrating political power, this sacred narrative of secular politics is uniformly pessimistic. How should we read these ancient texts about a territorial god who slaughters his pagan enemies? In what sense are these pages inspired? Can we draw parallels to our own pathologies of political power today? Is it possible to connect the politics of man with the politics of God whether in ancient Israel or in modern America, Zimbabwe, or Afghanistan? In his recent commentary, First and Second Kings, the reformed pastor Peter Leithart suggests that First and Second Kings are not merely historical, prophetic, or wisdom literature. He reads them as gospel texts that inform our church experiences today. There's the inseparable interplay between a king's private life and his public office. Idolatry looms large in these stories, especially the guns, gold, and girls of Solomon. The violent partition of Israel and Judah is redolent with applications for divisions in the contemporary church and the nature of genuine ecumenicity. The narrator uses flattering descriptions to describe the prominent role of outsiders among the insider-elect Israel. The military commander Naaman from Aram, for example, or the widow of Zarephath in Sidon who tenderly cares for Elijah. The providence of God over the history of humanity is also a prominent thing. So far, so good. But Leithart also uses the historical narratives of the kings to inform his doctrine of God. Yahweh, he says, is no great marshmallow in the sky. He's not a god who plays softball. He is the god, He is. nor is he the god of the philosophers, a gorgeous but impotent force in heaven. He is a warrior who fights to win and deception is part of his art of holy war. He is a god, says Leithart, of enmity and enemies, of violence and vengeance, and not merely by way of accommodation to human sinfulness or passive permission in the divine will. Leithart even endorses the violence of the kings as not only a necessary evil, but as a redemptive and positive good. This is where Leithart loses me. I prefer the reading of the Jesuit priest and peace activist Daniel Berrigan. In his new book, The Kings and Their Gods, 2008, he interprets First and Second Kings as self-serving imperial records that portray Israel's kings as they saw themselves and, more importantly, as they wanted others to see them. God favors my regime, and he hates my enemies. He blesses us with their booty. No war crime is too heinous as a means to the delusional ends of these kings. And so, on page after page, political hell descends to earth. There is one political end in the Book of Kings, says Berrigan. Extra imperium nulla salus. Outside the empire, there is no salvation. There are many pathological means to this one end untrammeled imperial ego, political retaliation with absolute impunity, military might, revisionist history, manipulation of memory and time grandiose building projects, economic exploitation, virulent nationalism, and sanctioning it all with divine approval, legitimation by religious psychophants. In First and Second Kings, says Berrigan, the medium itself is the message. A few dissenting voices object to imperial power, but they are silenced as unpatriotic and seditious. Only with 8th 8th century prophets like Amos are these official imperial texts amended so that we see and hear the real perspective of Yahweh about justice, kindness, and humility for all people everywhere. Elijah is just such an exception. He arrives on the scene in 1 Kings 17, quote, "as though after an endless night the longing of the saints summoned a dawn light." End quote. King Ahab had good reasons to despise Elijah as the troubler of Israel. Elijah had construed the prolonged drought as divine punishment for Ahab's idolatry. After Elijah publicly humiliated Ahab on Mount Carmel, his wife Jezebel boasted that she would assassinate him, just as she had slaughtered so many other prophets. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Nor was this an idle threat. Jezebel had already butchered many prophets. And so Elijah fled for his life. In chapter 19, verse 4, he confesses, Lord, I've had enough. But with a gentle whisper that spoke louder than a violent earthquake, a powerful wind, and a raging fire, God assured Elijah that he was not alone in his prophetic stand against political corruption. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those who have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. When we connect the horizons of these ancient texts in our contemporary context, 1st and 2nd Kings function as mirrors in which we see our own reflection today. And so Berrigan asks, Do our leaders differ in any large degree from the rulers of old? They are hardly different at all. And when we silence or ignore the the prophetic critique of contemporary politics, We live today under divine judgment just as much as Ahab and Jezebel did with Elijah's rebuke. And so Berrigan invokes the Nobel laureate Sheslav Milos in his poem, A Task. In fear and trembling, I think I would fulfill my life Only if I brought myself to make a public confession, revealing a sham my own, and of my epoch. We were permitted to shriek in the tongues of dwarfs and demons, but pure and generous words were forbidden, under so stiff a penalty that whoever dared to pronounce one considered himself as a lost man. In her memoir, Things Seen and Unseen, Nora Gallagher recalls meeting Daniel Berrigan in the spring of 1986. When she asked how many times he had been jailed, Berrigan responded, not enough. A poet, playwright, peace activist, and Jesuit priest, Berrigan has spent a long life obeying the good news of Jesus rather than the bad news of Caesar. He and his brother, Philip Berrigan, did time on the FBI's Ten Most Wanted list. In 1968, he and eight other activists stole 378 draft files of young men who were about to be sent to Vietnam, dumped them into two garbage cans, poured homemade napalm on them, and burned them in the parking lot of the Catonsville, Maryland draft board. In 1980, he trespassed into General Electric's nuclear missile plant in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, poured blood on some warhead nose cones, then hammered away to punctuate his prophetic point. On the final page of his reflections on the kings and their gods, Berrigan thus challenges us, and I quote one must urge to his own soul first a firm, rebutting midrash. Bring Christ to bear. Read the gospel closely, obediently. Welcome no enticements, no other claim on conscience. Mourn the preachers and priests whose silence and collusion signal plain revolt against the gospel. Enter the maelstrom, the wilderness. Flee the claim that would possess your soul. Earn the blessing. Pay up. Blessed, and also lonely and powerless and intent on the master, and if must be despised, scorned, locked up. Blessed are the makers of peace. And for further reflection, consider the book by Greg Boyd, The Myth of a Christian Nation, How the Quest for Political Power is Destroying the Church, Grand Rapids, Zondervan, 2006. And the following observation from Greg Boyd's book, The Path Through Politics is Not the Road to God. For books this week, I review the book by Daniel Berrigan, The Kings and Their Gods, The Pathology of Power, Grand Rapids, Erdman's, 2008, 202 pages. Now 87 years old, age has not extinguished the fires of Daniel Berrigan. Death row, smart bombs, Iraq, and what he calls abortion mills still provoke his prophetic ire. These meditations reflect on the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, and as you would expect, he draws parallels to our own pathologies of political power today. How should we read these ancient texts today? In what sense are 1st and 2nd Kings inspired Faraghan reads 1 and 2 Kings as self-serving imperial records that portray Israel's kings as they saw themselves and wanted others to see them. God is with us. He hates our enemies. He blesses us and destroys them. No war crime is too heinous as a means to these ends. There is one political end Outside the empire there is no salvation. In First and Second Kings, says Berrigan, the Bible is thus deconstructing itself. The medium is the message. A few dissenting voices object to imperial power, but they are silenced as unpatriotic and seditious. Only with the 8th century prophets are these official texts amended so that we see and hear the real perspective of Yahweh about justice, kindness, and humility for all people everywhere. Drawing upon the poetry of Czeslaw Milos, letters from his friend Thomas Merton, and revealing snippets from the New York Times Berrigan joins the hermeneutical horizons of ancient text and contemporary context. And so he urges us to a gospel obedience, to pay up, mourn the priests and preachers whose silence and collusion signal plain revolt against the gospel, enter the maelstrom, the wilderness, Flee every claim that would possess your soul and earn the blessing, the blessing of the peacemakers. Daniel Berrigan, The Kings and Their Gods. For film this week, I review Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The formula by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg remains the same, so if you enjoyed their first three thrillers, Raiders of the Lost Ark (1981), Temple of Doom (1984), and The Last Crusade 1989, you'll like Crystal Skull. Otherwise, this film is lots more of the same. By day, Dr. Henry Walton Indiana Jones, Jr. is a bespeckled professor of archaeology who lectures about extinct languages and exotic cultures. But his real vocation is as an adventure hero who dons his famous fedora and wields a wicked whip. He still hates snakes, decodes treasure maps and mystical runes, Outsmarts a Soviet agent named Irinka Spalko, played by Kate Blanchett, survives multiple disasters, endures British betrayal, and captures the sacred skull with its mystical powers, which, of course, makes the gods very angry. He reunites with his lover Marion Ravenwood, played by Karen Allen, and takes her surprise announcement about her son, Mutt Williams, played by Shia LeBouff in stride. There are plenty of corny jokes for comic relief, lots of monkeys swinging from trees, and tens of thousands of vicious ants. You can only wish to look like Harrison Ford, who is now 65 years old. Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. For poetry this week, we conclude our summer series of poems by John Donne. John Donne lived from 1572 to 1631. This week we've posted Sonnet 14, the opening line of which is very famous and might be recognizable to you. Batter my heart, 3 persons God. For you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. That I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, me should defend but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me John Donne sonnet 14 sonnet 14 batter my heart three person god Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday August the 10th 2008 I'm Daniel B Clendenin